0: It's working now. Well, it's great to be with you tonight. How many people were here this morning? That's good. Um, Just relax. I'm just going to preach for 45 minutes to everyone else to bring them up to speed and then we'll start the new message. (laughs) No, we don't need to do that. Um, But really tonight is in one sense a development from what we were sharing this morning uh, where we were talking about the context of people finding their lost calling understanding that for the great majority of us, the primary function and expression of that kingdom life and kingdom assignments will be outside of the four walls of the church. And so tonight I want to build on a little bit further to that by helping us to understand as we look at the church through different lenses, we're going to talk about the kingdom and the church. Um, Before I do that, I want to give away a book which I brought with me, which I know there's some resources available, but uh, this is a book which I wrote about three years ago and in sharing with you tonight and giving this away to somebody, I actually want to do this in such a way that it doesn't just simply be a promotion for a resource or even just a giveaway. I believe that the greatest wheel clamp that restricts the church today is not sin, but it's actually guilt and shame. And the reason why is because just about every person who's born again in this room here tonight, if I ask the question, do you know your sins are forgiven, I'd get a resounding Yes. But then I'd ask the question, then how come you still feel guilty? And the primary reason for that is that most of us understand that Jesus forgave our sin, but we think that's all He did with it. We don't understand that He did more than simply forgive our sin. And it's what else He did with our sin that actually removes shame and guilt. You know, even in the Old Testament, even under an Old Covenant, there were separate offerings for guilt as there was for sin. Because, you see, the whole thing about shame and guilt... Guilt is what you feel the regret of for the sin you committed. Shame is what other people project onto you. And if all that's happened is our sin has been forgiven, then we walk around holding forgiven sin. And if you hold on to forgiven sin, you'll feel shameful and regretful and guilty because it will be a perpetual reminder. And we need to understand that in the Word of God that, that the Bible teaches us that Jesus did more than simply forgive our sin. God did more than forgive our sin. For one example, he tells us that as far as the east is from the west, in the book of Isaiah, he says, so far have I removed your sin from you. In other words, we take the forgiven sin that's brought before God, brought under his grace, the forgiveness, the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin and enables us to walk in righteousness. He takes that forgiven sin and the Bible says he separates our sin from us. As far as the east is from the west. In other words, an infinite distance, never to meet again. That means he approaches you and I distinct from our sin, even distinct from our forgiven sin. If you understand that, it changes everything, it transforms everything. Because we, you know, we, we have this perpetual feeling that we're simply worms, we're sinners saved by grace. You know, but he calls us saints, and we go, yeah, that's nice, maybe one day but now I'm just a sinner saved by grace. He doesn't see you that way. He actually sees you distinct from your sin, even distinct from your forgiven sin. He sees you in the righteousness of Christ. The Bible says He didn't just forgive our sin or even separate it from us. The Bible tells us that He took our sins and He cast them into the depths of the sea. The prophet Micah tells us that, and we go, oh, that's a nice analogy, nice metaphor, very poetic language. But it's not. It's actually an intentional intentional communication from God as to what he does with our forgiven sin. You see, when that was spoken to the Jew some three and a half thousand years ago, there was no place more irrecoverable than the depths of the sea. This was pre-Jacques Cousteau. This was pre-underwater submersible submarine. You know, when that tragedy happened a few years ago with the Air France flight went down in the middle of the Atlantic, they estimated it could take up to two years to find and retrieve the black box, not because they didn't know where it was, but because of the depth of the sea at that point where it was lost and the feeling it may never be recoverable. You see, when Micah, on behalf of God, spoke to the people and said, I'll take your sin, I'll trample them underfoot, I'll forgive them, speaking of Christ coming, and I will bury your sin in the depths of the sea, he was saying it's irrecoverable. To the Jew, it was the most irrecoverable place. You know, if, if the depths of the sea, you can't even, you, couldn't, you can't get there. He could have said, look, I'm going to take your forgiven sin. I'm going to throw it into the furthest desert. But the problem is, one day you can be walking through the desert and trip over something and go, oh my goodness, what's that? And pick it up and go, oh, that's Martin Steele's forgiven sin. (laughs) Has anybody got any hand sanitizer or latex gloves? But he didn't say, I've thrown it in the furthest desert. He said, I've thrown it into the depths of the ocean. He separates our sin from us having forgiven it. He puts it where it's irrecoverable. By the way, if... If he says it's irrecoverable, who are you to go back and try and recover it? And also, who are you to try and recover someone else's and remind them of it? (laughs) And finally, not just once, twice, three times in the Word of God, he says this one other statement. This is the one that blows my mind. This is the one which gives me the understanding of shame off you. Is the concept where he says, and I shall remember your sin no more. Now, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He freaks us out by telling us that he calls the stars by name. And we go, that's cool. Until one day we actually start to understand the number of stars in even a single universe. And we go, you call those things by name? I mean, like a church this size, in my church, my, my biggest pain as a senior leader is I just wish I could remember every single person's name in my church. I'd love to know the names of their kids. I know, you know, and, and, and I recognize faces, and it's like it, it, it pains me. And that's just the church. I mean, he says, look, you know, I, I call every star by name. He says, when a, when a, a sparrow falls, I, I'm aware of it. I'm conscious of it. He says, I know everything. I know the number of hairs on your head. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Easier for some, huh? It's like I tell people, if you're gonna witness to your hairdresser. You know, for me, I've got to give the four spiritual laws, get it over and done with quickly, but you know, some of you could read Pilgrim's Progress, the four Gospels and the Book of Revelation to your hairdresser whilst you're getting your hair done. But he, but he knows, he knows the hairs on our head. Now, this is a God who knows everything. So when he says, I'll remember your sin no more, hang on, he knows everything. He's omniscient, but he's also omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He can do anything he wants. He has the power to do anything. So he chooses through his omnipotence, To remember one thing, not though he's all knowing, he's all powerful, and through his all power, he chooses to remember one thing not our forgiven sin. He doesn't just say it once; he doesn't just say it twice. He says it three times in Scripture: "I will remember your sin no more." When our sin is brought before him once and before we brought before him, we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then he remembers our sin no more. And then what the devil does is, is the devil loves to come along and put a wheel clamp of guilt and shame on you by reminding you of the thing God's forgiven. Remind you of the thing he's remembering no more. Remind you of the thing that he's separated from you. You lift your hands and worship and the closer you get to God, sometimes the more likely you are to find the devil. How's that for theology? The closer you get to God, the more likely you are to find the devil. The book of Zechariah, chapter 3, it says Joshua, the high priest, standing in the presence of God and there was Satan at his right hand accusing him, pointing out his filthiness. How come the closer you get into God's presence, more often you are to find the devil? Because he's there as an interceptor. He's there to accuse you in God's presence and say, you're not fit to be here. Don't lift your hands. Do you know the amazing thing about the devil? I'm not preaching on this, but I'm going on this for a moment. So I feel I've got to do this. You know, the amazing thing about the devil is he knows Scripture very well. And he has this uncanny ability to take Old Testament fulfilled Scriptures and apply them to your life as if they're yet to be fulfilled. He loves this one. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And you've got to lift your hands and worship or to serve God. And he goes, oh, your hands aren't clean. And he goes, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He has clean hands and a pure heart. The Bible tells us when Christ came, he cleansed us and exchanged our heart. The Bible even tells us Ezekiel, he'll give us a heart, a new heart for what was the old heart of stone, circumcision of the heart. That scripture was fulfilled in Christ. Otherwise, we may as well go back into the Old Testament and keep trying to crawl our way up the hill by getting our hearts purer and our hands cleaner through works and obeying the law. That's an old covenant scripture fulfilled in Christ. It's not parted. It's not gone away. It hasn't been lost. It's been fulfilled. It's been redeemed. So you and I, if we're born again, have clean hearts and and pure hearts and clean hands. Full stop. And then the devil comes up and goes, oh, you can't ascend the hill of the Lord. What's ascending the hill of the Lord? Coming into his presence. Experiencing intimacy with God exchanging at the king's table, dreaming of kingdom, being a son and a daughter of God, worship, service, kingdom life, and the devil goes, whoa, you're not meant to be here, look at your hands, look at your heart, and you're like, and God's like, oh my goodness, I've told you once, twice, three times. Anyway. Is there someone here who knows someone who's really suffering and, and, and literally really dealing with guilt at the moment? I'm giving this to give to someone. Okay, ma'am, thank you very much. Can I just... Oh, thanks, Simon. Okay, anyway, um, there's a whole bunch of USBs out there too that's got e-books, that has got ebooks, that e book on it and other things, but it was more important getting the message to you than simply letting you know there's resources available. There's a picture on the screen. I'm preaching off pictures, though. I haven't even got a single note. I'm preaching off pictures, so this is going to be cool. Um, I want to talk to you about this whole thought of the kingdom and the church... You see, the amazing thing is that, as I shared this morning, somewhere we've got this thing about church all mixed up. We've made the church the vessel rather than the vehicle. We've made the church the destination rather than the means. And we've sort of got this belief that somehow that, that we're called to build the church. But Jesus actually said, no, I'll build my church. My commission to you is to go into all the world and make disciples of nations, What does it mean to disciple? It means to shape, to form, to fashion, to mold, to form. And he told us not disciples in nations. He actually specifically said disciples of nations. He said, I want you to disciple nations. I'm going to empower you to disciple nations. I'll build the church. You disciple the nation. And so we're told to shape and form a culture and bring a kingdom culture into our nation to bring people into relationship with God. But we think we're called to build the church And then we say, well, God, you look after discipling nations. That's far too big a thing for us. And as I also shared this morning, I said, we get this thing around the wrong way where we think that that we're called to take people out of the world into the church to prepare them for heaven. But he said, no, 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 pray this. Pray that my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My kingdom will come. In other words, let's get heaven through the church into the world. is his primary commission to us, and we go, well, no, no, why don't we just get people out of the world into the church to prepare them for heaven? Are we allowed to laugh at ourselves a little bit and have a little bit of fun? Okay. I'm going to take you pretty quickly in a moment through a whole bunch of PowerPoint slides where I'm going to take this analogy of what we think about church. You know how the Bible talks about the doorway to salvation, Christ knocking on the door. Let's have a look at the next PowerPoint slide. It's amazing how somehow we've made the doorway the actual destination, We've made salvation the end of itself. We've actually made where Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the door to truth and life, uh, uh, the, the, the church and the kingdom, the whole concept of bringing people into relationship with God. We've actually made salvation the end result. As if once somebody's saved, that's awesome. Now we are just got to put them in a holding pattern until Jesus either comes back to take us to heaven or, or, or they go to heaven and die. But we're trying to get people to live in a doorway. It's like, I'm saved now. Great for what? Well, for salvation. For what? Um, Like, you imagine buying a house and living in the doorway. It's quite ridiculous, right? We're going to look at the next PowerPoint slide, and, and look, I'm going to use the analogy of a train. I'm going to use an analogy of the train to talk about the kingdom, to talk about the church, because it's a vehicle that also has the potential, if it's not mobile, to simply be a destination of itself. There's no perfect analogy when it comes to the church. There's no perfect analogy. It's like, you know, even the, the models in the Bible of what, what is the church? Well, it's the bride, it's the body. It, what's the kingdom? Like, it's, you know, Martin, you're telling us that it's like a train? Well, Jesus said the kingdom of God's like a net. And we're like, oh my goodness, a net, it's full of holes. You know, there's no perfect analogy. These are elements. But I want to take the analogy of how we actually make the church the destination rather than it being the vehicle through which kingdom life is expressed. I shared earlier today that E. Stanley Jones, one of the greatest preachers on the kingdom of God, 50 years ahead of his time, when he was 87 years of age, in 1968 I think, wrote a book called The Unshakable Kingdom, The Unchanging Person, speaking of Christ and the kingdom. And he said early in the book, he said, my challenges and my concern is that the church of the future, that's us, would not reject the kingdom of God, but would actually reduce it. And in reducing it, would simply reduce the kingdom of God to only being the church. Hmm. You have a look at the next slide. This is a picture taken in one of the famous train stations in China where they employ people to simply push and fill carriages of trains to fit everybody on because of the population and the limitations of the transport system. These people in the uniforms are actually employed professionals. Their nickname is Tusha Pushers, right? Tushy Pushies. And their whole goal is to push people. In if I had a video clip, and I've seen a few, you've got people lining up, and one by one they push up against the, the the door, and hopefully they're pushing on briefcases and other things, but these people come in like a rugby scrum and start pushing and shoving people in till finally the doors can close, and it's like... Oh, now, to me, this is sometimes how we treat church. The evangelists have brought all the people, and now we've got the pastors. Now we've got the life group leaders. And our whole concept is, our commission is to build the church. We've got to get people out of the world. We've got to get them saved, and then get them into the church. And the next slide tells us that sometimes we think of the church simply being as this, this, this vessel, this stationary, mobile vessel that just simply contains more and more and more and more people. And it isn't going anywhere. And what happens is we make the church the destination rather than actually the means. We, we make it our objective as opposed to the vehicle through which kingdom life is meant to be expressed into every area of society. And the more we do that, if we can actually laugh at ourselves a little bit, the more we do that is we start to make every decision and all our preferences based on the train rather than the kingdom so what happens is we have people who want a traditional train some people just like traditional trains but there are others that actually like a contemporary train I'm not going to be on a traditional we go to a contemporary train on our train we have lights on our train, we actually have little little screens that we can actually see things happening. You see, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be a traditional, but other people of preference. I want to be a traditional train. I, sorry, church. I want to be a traditional, a, a contemporary train. I mean, contemporary church. And the other thing that we do is we start to go to these train growth seminars. I mean, sorry, church growth seminars, <laughs> where we actually learn that you know that we've got to make sure that in our train that we have a carriage for for mums and babies and. You know, next we see, we see that we've got to also make sure that if we're a family-focused train, then, then we'll be able to fill the train. And actually, the more that we can focus on families, the more our train will be filled rather than the train that's on the other platform. We also make sure that we're catering for generations, so we make sure we've got a youth carriage. And that's the wild carriage. It's a big carriage. It, the seats get ruined in the, in the youth carriage, but, but at least we've got a youth carriage, you know? And then we also say that, the, that, that we have a place of connection and social activity. And if you want to be part of this train, we've got the best train because this is where you can really connect with other people who come and sit on trains. And then we make sure we cater for all ages on the train. We make sure that because of preference that we have times for people to come to trains but I don't know what the point is because they're always late anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, it's all about the train. And then this is the next one. This is the one that really gets me. This is what I was talking a bit about this morning. We make sure that every single person who comes to the train knows that if you hang around here long enough, we're going to teach you, train you, develop you, put you through every leadership training program so that one day you can drive the train. (laughs) And then we wonder why people get bored to death. Some of you are saying, that's my spouse. <laughs> you know, as I was sharing this morning, just hold it on that slide for a moment, Devin. It's like that whole concept is that all our kingdom assignments, we, we're called to do all these wonderful, amazing things that God's put us on the planet for and when we get saved. Somebody tells us that now every gift that we have, every ability we have, every talent we have, everything that we're called to do is going to be fulfilled in the context of just the church. And we have people wandering around the church with these kingdom assignments like big beams and logs banging into each other going, this thing just doesn't fit here. Because this place is meant to equip you to do those kingdom assignments outside. And so we have people sometimes sitting on trains. And the only reason I can preach this in a church like The Rock is because of my relationship with Greg and knowing the understanding of your leadership of the the same paradigm that we want to see this as a place of empowerment to do kingdom life out there. But you'd be amazed how the default setting in most of our thinking and teaching is that every gift we have, every focus we have, every objective, every mission is only fulfilled in the church. And suddenly the vehicle becomes the vessel as opposed to the means. And then we tell people, next slide, that, that the only reason that we're still here on this planet is because there are still train carriages that are empty and that Jesus one day will make sure that when there's enough of these train carriages filled, he'll come back. And so we tell everyone that the reason you're part of this, you're part of this train, is because we've got to go out and fill other carriages. And if you see on the next slide, people f- suddenly fill a carriage and go, wow, this feels so fulfilling. We've fulfilled the carriage. What now? And they say, well, there's still empty carriages, so you just got to make sure we fill another one. And it becomes like this absolute repetitive cycle where <laughs> we go to other countries and we fill their carriages. you know, Because we're, we're not just a local church, we're a missional church. And so we're going to give and we're going to go and we're going to have a program to make sure that we can go to every country on the planet and help them fill their, their, their trains, I mean their churches. Hmm. Interesting, huh? And so we find ourselves just focusing on making everything about the train. And then we have this wonderful end times doctrine when we tell people that if we can just get the carriages filled enough, one day there'll be a magic number of people on board the train, where Jesus will come back and will actually take his train home. So everything, everything becomes about getting to the train station. Next slide. We wonder why we have churches filled with people who say there's got to be more. And there has got to be more. So you might say, well, Martin, that's an interesting analogy. But what I'd like to propose to you is that the actual analogy of the train is a lot more specifically accurate than what we at first think. Because the difference between a train becoming a vehicle and it becoming a vessel is the simple question, is it going anywhere? Is it going anywhere? If you have a look at the next slide, I've tried to create a little bit of a... A visual image here to show you how I think because you see what I love about the church and the way that the church is meant to come together and in a few moments I'll talk to you a bit about what Jesus meant when he called the church the church is I love this imagery here because it's like like the bands of of color that all come together are actually the church It's the people of the church it's the the people of kingdom coming together in, in a place of being brought into unity giftings distinct giftings and empowerment together as one faith community but what happens is we're together and then and i love this image i've got here with this this almost like a tree of life is that we're meant to come together from all areas of life bond together do life together be empowered together be taught discipled and be in an atmosphere of faith community to again go out every day of the week into our various callings and assignments and destinations and to bring transformation if you look at the next slide you'll see that every area of society, every area of community, has the application and the potential to express kingdom life. You see, we we say that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And we go, that means lost people. But actually, he came to seek and to save lost communities, lost nations, lost cities. He weeps over cities. He weeps over nations. I think when he looks at the arts, he weeps and cries over it, yearning for it to be redeemed. You know, when you look back through history, the arts, just simply areas of the arts, music, literal art, all were vehicles to express truth about God. I, I had a tremendous time some about a year ago. My wife and I, for our 25th wedding anniversary, were able to go and travel to, uh, to Italy uh, and spend time in Tuscany. And so... At first, I'm about the food and she's about the buildings. And I thought, well, maybe we can buy and we'll eat in the building and have something. And we'd, we'd walk out into all the Duamos and all the, all the cathedrals. And then I'd look up and I'd see these amazing paintings of all the gospel stories. And the funny thing at the time is we were just upgrading in our own church, in our own train, with vehicle. We were upgrading all our, all our, all our um, like communication stuff, you know, like cameras and screens and all this. And, I, and we, would, we weren't getting any resistance other than obviously the the total cost and value is significant, and I, I suddenly found myself juxtaposing hundreds of years ago and then today, because, you see, like what I'm doing tonight, because of the system you've got here, I'm taking you on a journey visually, telling you a story of kingdom life, and I noticed hundreds of years ago that every painting, every fresco, every image throughout those cathedrals, one would be Jesus being baptized, another would be overcoming the temptation, another would be the resurrection of Christ, another would be the healing of the blind man. This was their, this was their video systems, this was their arts telling the stories of kingdom. But it wasn't just restricted to simply the cathedrals. The arts that hung in the places of governance, the art that hung in places of of business and marketplace and every area, even the places of healing, the, the spas and the towns would have imageries that would tell the arts proclaim the glory of God. And now we look at what's happened to art and music and media and that. And I think God says, I came to redeem that. I came to seek and to save it. So if we look at the next slide... There's nothing wrong with being on a train as long as it's going somewhere. To see the church as God's vehicle for empowerment to then through the week go into the areas that God's called us to. If you've ever sat on a train, a plane, or an an automobile that's held up for whatever reason because somebody's got to change a windscreen wiper on the plane or something and you sit there for three hours on the tarmac, you actually hate the train or the plane or the automobile. But when it's taking you to somewhere you're meant to go, when it's taking you to release your kingdom assignments, your giftings and passions and marketplace and community and society, suddenly it has a whole value. So let's ask ourselves the next question. What's the difference between the kingdom and the church? What is the kingdom and what is the church? Because what I find incredibly challenging is that Jesus in all of his teaching only twice mentioned the word church but over a hundred times specifically spoke and taught about the kingdom. It's amazing that when we read the Gospel, the book of Acts, how Luke writes to Theophilus in the opening chapter and he says these words, he says, As I told you about Jesus and all that he did, and after he was raised from the dead, how he was with his disciples for 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. Now when Jesus is raised from the dead he has a 40-day window to impart to those who were once his disciples but now are his apostles, people sent with a mission of bringing culture. For 40 days he taught them on one thing and one thing alone, the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. Not church, not how to fashion the carriages of the train, not how to facilitate train stations and timings. He taught them about how they would be empowered to go and represent the kingdom of God. So when we ask that question, well, what is the kingdom? The kingdom simply is this. The word kingdom doesn't refer to a territory or geographical setting. Some of the people ask Jesus, when is this kingdom going to come and where is the kingdom? And he says, behold, you won't be able to say here it is or there it is for the kingdom of God. Is not a, a place of location. It's not a place of defined territory. He says, The kingdom of God is within you. You won't just say, Here it is, or There it is, for the kingdom of God is in you. You see, the word kingdom is based on the Greek word basilia, the Hebrew word malkuath, and it means the, the sovereign reign and governance of another. It literally means the kingly reign. And so, what he's saying is that the kingdom of God is where God is ruling, where the values of heaven are established when he said pray that your kingdom would come your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven it answers the question what does it look like for the kingdom of god to be manifest the answer is when the will of god is being done there is the kingdom people would come to him and certain things would happen or you know casting out demons or healing or, or freeing people from injustice and, and and he would say the kingdom of god is at hand In other words, the kingdom of God is where God's will is being done. So let's ask the question, if the church is simply the kingdom of God, if it's limited to the kingdom of God and we say, well, actually, you know, the church is the kingdom. Don't get me wrong, the church is in the kingdom, but the church is not the fullness of the kingdom. All of the church, the redeemed church of God is in the kingdom, but not all the kingdoms in the church because the church is 2,000 years old. The church is only 2,000 years old. But the kingdom of God has existed way, way, way before that. God's rulership. There are angels and, and spiritual beings that aren't part of this church. Well, I don't know. I've been looking at a couple of people over here and I've got my one. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That could be a very good compliment. You see that there are spiritual beings that do the will of God that aren't part of the church. The church is 2,000 years old. Jesus said, I'll build my church. and He establishes this church after his death and resurrection, but the kingdom of God, God's rulerships existed long before. The kingdom of God is being done when you bring justice. When you help a person through your career to find employment, you're doing the kingdom of God, the will of God. Because it's the will of God that every person actually has purpose on life. Work is worship. The kingdom of God. So, let's talk about this aspect about the kingdom being lost. If We can just go to the next slide. I'm I'm more teaching tonight than preaching for a moment, but I... I want you to get this thing because this will unlock a lot if it can free us in it. The origin of the kingdom of God is this, that God has dominion. He has rulership. He has lordship over everything. But the unique thing about God is that in the book of Genesis, he takes man and woman, he puts them in this garden and he says, I will give you dominion. I'll give you kingdom. I will give you rulership over this planet and everything that's in it. And then he says, but there's one exception. He says, I'm going to give you this garden of Eden and all the trees of the fields, all the birds of the air, all the fish of the sea, every beast, I give you mankind dominion, kingdom over. He says, there's one thing you must not touch and if you ever touch that, the day you take hold of that, the day you take control of that tree, then you'll die the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we go, wow, God didn't want us to know what's naughty and nice. We think it simply means the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, knowing what's right and wrong, knowing that's naughty and that's nice. That's a swear word and that's not. That's a hand smack. We think God wants to keep us in perpetual naivety because we think that's what the word knowledge and good and evil means. But if you have a look at the next screen here, the word knowledge in Hebrew doesn't mean understanding or intellectual insight. It literally means deciding, discriminating, determining. He says, one thing I won't hand over to mankind is the control of who decides what's good and what's evil. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the devil comes along and we read in the book of Genesis chapter 3, But the devil, next slide, thanks, Devin. The devil comes along and he says to Adam, he says to Eve actually at first, he says, did God say all of this is yours and you have dominion over everything, kingdom? And Eve says, yes, God said everything's ours and we can control it apart from one thing. We must not take control of the tree of deciding what's right and wrong, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Interesting, the devil spits out and he says, "Nah." He says, God knows that the moment you take control, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you have a look at the next part of the screen. The word God that's used there in Hebrew means to be a ruler or a judge. The word knowing means to decide. And so he says this, God knows that if you, mankind, take control of that tree, you will be like rulers, deciding for yourselves what's right and what's wrong. And Eve goes, Wow, I could handle that. See, God said, I'm going to give you, mankind, dominion. I'm going to give you lordship over this planet. I'm actually creating you in my image. I want you to rule and reign and bring goodness. I'm actually giving you this planet to make it something that's awesome. I want this place to be like heaven, earth to be like heaven. And as long as you never take control of deciding for yourself what's right and what's wrong, this dominion will be yours forever. You know the story how the enemy comes along and says to them, nah, if you take control, you'll be like gods. And so, next slide, thanks. Sorry, one before, we'll go back. Eve partakes of the fruit of the tree. Adam takes control. And God comes along and he says, you're out of this. You've lost the kingdom. If we go ahead two slides, you'll see a thought if we hold on that one. That we had a kingdom within a kingdom. Within the world in which man was first put, he gave us a world to control. He put into the hands of mankind a world for us to lead, a world for us to bless. He says, be fruitful, multiply, go and take what I've given you and turn it into something. And when mankind fell and when mankind sinned, what happens is we lost the world. We forfeited it. And then the gospel is the story of Christ coming back, not just to redeem man for heaven, but actually to redeem man so that they could take control of the world again and see the world redeemed. If all we ever think about is church, as being this spaceship rapture, that if we can just get enough people out of this world and into this so that we can go to heaven, then it means the original plan of God will never, ever, ever see anything that even barely resembles fruition or fulfillment. What if the radical thought is that he put you and I on this planet for purpose and the purpose has to do with the planet and that his plan of redemption where Christ came to redeem mankind, that maybe Jesus was actually serious when he said, now I want to empower you to go and make disciples of nations. What if his plan all along is to see that every single sphere of society is redeemed? But if the church simply battens down the hatches and becomes a disconnect from the world which is redeemable so that we can exit this place at the final push of a button when the magic number hits a certain amount. Then again, all the church becomes is a holding vehicle, vessel rather than a vehicle. So let's look at the next screen. Let's for a moment think about, no, it's not a toga party. What did Jesus mean when he said, I'm going to build my church? If you know the passage, I'm going to read it to you out of the Gospel of Matthew. Peter has a revelation of who Christ is. He, Jesus comes up and says, Hey, who do men say that I am? And some of the disciples say, Well, you know, popular opinion this week on Twitter is, some say you're Elijah. Others say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're, you're this, and some people say that you're that, a rabbi. And Jesus says, Well, who do you say that I am? In other words, who is Christ to you? So, who am I to you? And Peter just speaks out. He goes, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the King. You're the Anointed One. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, Peter, blessed are you. Wikipedia did not reveal this to you. Flesh and blood, Google did not reveal this to you. But my Father in heaven revealed it to you. And upon that rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. You see, in that one simple passage, is something that could change the way you live your life and determine the value of what you're on this planet for. He says, on the revelation of who Christ is, that Jesus, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, he says, upon this revelation, I will build my church. And it was the first time in history... Scripturally, or according to some of the historians like Josephus of the time, never before in any Hebrew writing or context ever was the term ecclesia, church used to describe a spiritual community. Jesus could have used the term synagogue. He could have used the word faith community. He could have said, I'm going to pull out of this filthy, stinking world a whole bunch of redeemed people who I'll put into these little churches and and we're going to send people out covertly Monday to Friday to drag people into this thing so that one day when the magic number comes, I'll go poong and up to heaven." He says, no, no, I'm going to build an ecclesia. And that's a bit of a teaching session tonight, but if you get this, you'll get why you're here today. The word ecclesia was a term familiar to the Jew of the day because of their power of the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire. It was a political term, literally meaning those who were called out of society for the purpose of rulership and governing. It was the right of every single citizen. It wasn't a democracy of election. It was a right of every citizen who was part of Athens or or Rome or or Greece or or, or the Roman Empire. Every person who was a citizen had the right to exercise ecclesia just by rocking up. They became part of a group who were entitled to be empowered with the purpose of bringing the culture, the culture of Rome to wherever. You hear the word apostolic used an apostolic church, an apostolic covenant, an apostolic company. Even the word apostle was borrowed. Jesus said, you've been my disciples, but now I'm going to make you my apostles. Apostles were Roman generals who when Rome extended its empire to territories where there were barbarians and people who weren't part of Rome, they weren't like the Mongols who would come in like Genghis Khan and simply slaughter people. They would actually come and they would conquer and control of other places in France and Egypt and other places. They would take these communities who they believed were barbarian and then, what they would do once they'd established their military overthrowing of that city and town, they would then send apostolos, generals sent with one purpose, and that was to bring the culture of Rome to culturalize the people. Because they actually sincerely believed that their culture was better, they believed it was the civilization of people. That's why you can go to every single city in Europe and see massive aqueducts and architecture and engineering feats to bring water to people who weren't. We celebrate today in our modern. Year 2012, water. Wow, let's do a water project for the poor in Africa. Isn't it awesome? There's this dirty well and now we've got a pump going. And we say, that's the kingdom of God. Do you know every place that Rome went, they built massive aqueducts to bring water to the city so that people could have fresh, clean water. Because they actually believed they were bringing civilization a better way. And when Jesus took his disciples raised from the dead and said, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my people called out for the purpose of governance, bringing blessing and benevolence. He then said, I'm going to take you as apostles and send you. To not just convert, but to culturalize. Not with the mechanisms of man or political systems, but with the values of heaven. And he says, that is what I'll do. But then he mentions, just these last few minutes, he mentions this next portion, which is so powerful. He says, I'll build my church. And then he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been brought up in a... We'll just hold the screen there for a while, Devin. If you've been brought up in a Pentecostal church, you've probably sung all those songs like, The gates of hell shall not prevail against the armies of the Lord. <laughs> it's got a really terrible rhythm and a worse melody. But we used to sing that as young Pentecostals 20, 25 years ago. We used to get the two-step going, you know. The gates of hell shall... And I used to have visions as a young Christian of gates jumping off their hinges and running at the church going, you know, smacking. We're like, you won't prevail. As if we were some defensive fort. But gates don't jump off their hinges and attack churches. The gates of hell will not prevail. But you see, in our modern thinking, we think of gates as simply being one-dimensional, two-dimensional little things that swing on hinges. In the biblical time, the city gates, this is worth the journey to be here tonight, the city gates weren't an access point to go in and out on a single two-dimension. They were normally built in about six different porticos, and they were surrounding a city in different areas. The city gates was the place of the center of the media, politics, law. Prophets prophesied in the city gates. Judicial systems were established in the city gates. It was at the city gates where Boaz had redeemed the right to marry Ruth. Through proper legal due diligence. It's at the city gates where the herald would proclaim the news of the kingdom. The city gates was where the marketplace was. You read of every famine that happened in the Bible. You hear how what would happen is all the marketplaces, they would come and trade at the city gates, the food. When the city gates were shut, the city was lost to its food and its source. The city gates talks about, next slide, our places of media. It talks about our places of politics and governance. It talks about our places of the marketplace. The city gates were the hubs of the community. Now, here's what Jesus said, powerful thought. He said to people who understand what city gates are, he says, I will call you together and make you my ecclesia. My people called out of a community to come together, not to be apart from them, but for the purpose of governing and ruling bringing goodness and benevolence. And the gates under the control of hell will not prevail. And the word prevail, in Greek there means to be superior in strength to. Literally, superior in strength to. So now this is what Jesus said. On the revelation that I'm the king, I'm the Christ, I'm going to build a thing called a church. And this church is going to be a people who are called together for the purpose of dominion, called together for the purpose of rulership, called together for the purpose of bringing change and influence and benevolence to a redeemable society. And I want to tell you that every city gate, not little hingey things, but in the mind of the disciples, wow, the, the place of decisions, the elders, the kings, the prophets prophesy, the, the marketplace, every area of city life, Everything under the control of hell will not be superior in strength to this church. It's interesting that when Jesus was in the wilderness, first hungry, the devil says, turn bread, these stones into bread. Jesus is like, no way. He says, okay, um, why don't you try and throw yourself down from this high place and see if God really is able to catch you, care for you, give his angels charge over you. Jesus is like, no. says, the devil then took Jesus up into a high place and showed him all of the kingdoms of the earth. I don't believe that was just over there as the kingdom of Egypt, as the kingdom of Iraq or Babylon. I think it was every sphere, the animal kingdom, the kingdoms of territory and the kingdoms of business and industry. And then the devil says this to Jesus, if you worship me, If you submit to me, I will give you all of these because these have been handed to me. These have been delivered to me and I'll give them to you if you just worship me. I know it's been a fairly intense, long teaching session but if you can grasp the meaning of what happened in that simple exchange, it was a reflection back to his stroke. In the Garden of Eden where man, us, humanity created in the image of God actually had dominion of this planet for the purpose of filling it, blessing it, doing it good. And when the devil said, you know what? Why don't you make a decision to be Lord, dethrone the king and you decide what's right and wrong? The same thing that got the devil kicked out of heaven. I will be like God. Man fell to the trap. God in his mercy expelled him from the garden before he could touch the tree of eternal life. There were two trees in the garden, the tree of the decision of what's right and wrong, the other the tree of eternal life. He says, if you eat of that tree, you'll stay exactly as you are forever. It was actually God's mercy to have a people who were redeemed and people who, who who were pure and sinless to live forever but the moment sin came in if we'd got to that other tree we'd have been locked there forever. His act of mercy put us out so that Christ could come and redeem us but now his purpose is to put us back in to redeem this world and the gates, every area of life he's called us to go into. That final image that you see up on the screen, the conclusion of what I want to share with you today is not some radical Christian political party it's not dominionist thinking of, of radicalism, of let's go and seize control and let's create a party that can seize control of government. It's about us recognizing that our callings and giftings. The Bible says, show me a person, a man, a woman, who excel in their gift and they'll stand before kings. The way in which the media, the way in which politics, the way in which health and Community, The way in which kingdom, apostolically, the culture of kingdom can be brought into those areas is where men and women release the giftings of God to excel and have answers. This nation is in deep trouble. This city is in deep trouble. The leaders of this city, the leaders of this nation have problems they don't have solutions for. They can't get on top of domestic violence. They can't get on top of corruption. They can't get on top of economic downturns and gravity that pulls uh, through greed. And the reason why is because Christians historically have exited out of places of influence and allowed humanism at best and Satanism at worst to come in and take control. So for 15 years in the banks of Europe and the banks of America and Wall Street... The books and the teachings was greed is good. Greed will stir an economy. Greed. And so a Lehman Brothers board recognized through a loophole that through selling bundles of low-doc prime, low-prime mortgages bundling together, they can actually bet and make profit off loss. And they did. They made fortunes. Where they could actually trade an option in such a way that their money that came to the wealth transferred, wealth transferred to them, occurred by actually betting against future loss, not improvement and profit. And they say, greed is good. But the Bible teaches that life comes. Profit comes when we add value, not subtract. And that long tail eventually caught up and stung not only those that actually profited, but those who were profited from. And when grown men and women are leaping out of buildings and blowing their brains out on their dining room tables, Because the only thing of financial security left in their life redeemable for the next 20 years is an insurance policy that will still pay out on suicide. Then a young daughter and a young son walks into a room to find a dead dad because everything he built and every financial decision he's made had been stolen from someone who profited because they believed the culture that greed was good. My question is not the anger at the Lehman Brothers board. My question is where were the kingdom people who like the Calvins of the 16 and 1700s or 15 and 1600s looked at Geneva, the stinkiest, scabbiest city of Europe at the time, literally the scabbiest, stinkiest, filthiest, mongrelous city if you ever studied economically and historically. And when they experienced the redemption of God and believed that all things could be made holy, according to the first book of Timothy, they said, we can redeem the economy. Do you know, it was Calvin, the famous revivalist, who presented to the government at the time in the city of Geneva an economic policy to stop usury because it was not of God, and to introduce a low interest rate of 4% that would enable profitability but enable economic growth. In 300 years, the government locked in their interest rate of 4% based on Calvin. The greatest economists of today who research the formation of the city of Geneva into becoming the hub of the banking industry, the hub of precision engineering, the hub of the humanitarian, attribute it to one person and his disciples. Calvin and his, and the church because they became vehicles not vessels. And we look today and we go, "Wow, Swiss chocolate. Wow, Swiss engineering. Wow, Swiss watches." But you see all that Calvin did was teach the manufacturers that they should exercise integrity. And the core Christian value of integrity became what today is known as precision engineering. Think Swiss watch, now think milk in the melamine powder. Or melamine in the milk powder. One group of people say, we can make more money by removing integrity. One group of people said, we'll make success by exercising integrity. I'm out of time. Not out of preaching, but I'm out of time. (laughs) And I know when to stop. It's About five minutes ago. (laughs) You're an awesome church, but you're pressing my buttons. It's been teaching, not ministry, but the ministry is what will come out of this moment. Why don't you stand with me? I want to pray a prayer of empowerment. And I want to declare over you Jesus' promise that he would build his church. And that this church, this church, that worship team, thank you, this church that is a vessel that has a vehicle and has motion, that when you look at that image, when you see those lines that go out, even if I get a keyboard, that would help, thanks. I'm about to sing you a solo. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I think too. When you see those lines that go out into every area of society, I want to pray a simple prayer right now, asking God to identify to you your destination, where you're going to carry kingdom. So close your eyes right now. I want you to just reach up to heaven and you say, God, I'm here to be a target. God, I want you to drop upon me anointings. Anointings to go and bring the kingdom of God into the spheres of society, the spheres of the city, the spheres of our community. So Father, right now, I release in the name of Jesus the power and the promise of your word. Your word precedes reality. You said, let there be light and light came. God, you spoke and the earth was formed. And I'm praying now that as we release the power of your word that says that as we recognize your lordship as we come under the lordship of Christ, Christ the King. You've said that you will on that basis make it a rock, a rock, a foundation through which, O God, you'll call together a group of people, a community of believers who will be restored to the privileged position like the Adams and the Eves of having a place of dominion, an opportunity to add value to this earth, to see this earth become what like heaven is upon this earth. You've said to pray prayers like this. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in the economic areas, in media, in families. God, we pray for the families of our nation, that your will would be done in families just like it is in heaven. We pray, God, in industry, in the marketplace. We pray in community, media, the arts. God, every sphere, the health industries, every part of society. We claim your promise that the gates that were under the control of hell through your redemption would now be given back to your church, that every area of our society would be redeemed. And I'm praying now as you promised that you've said you'll send us out to make disciples of nations, but you said that the Holy Spirit will come upon us and he will empower us to be your witnesses, your representatives. So God, I'm praying, even out of tonight, even out of what has been a teaching out of your word, a catalyst would explode within us, that would help us to understand the power of coming together, is to be together, to go out, to carry what we've given here, to seed kingdom life. In Jesus' name, if that's what you're believing for, I want you to lift your hands, your voices. I want you to clap to God. I want you to say, God, this is a new day. This is a new day. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Thank you, Holy Spirit.